Hey, this is Jonathan Fields from Good Life Project. I am here for the Good Life Project Roundtable with two awesome human beings, my guests in residence for the next three weeks, including today. I have one of our regular guests, Gabra Zachman, who is a legendary voice artist, romance author, actor, all around human being, and I'm pretty sure taller than me. <laughs> On my right, <laughs> I have... Mr. Daniel Lerner, who is a um, an expert in expertise and expert performance, a positive psychology madman, a soon-to-be author. What else am I missing here that's really fancy? I don't even know where to begin. Wears a uh, sweater vest really well. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's probably a similar height as me, in case you're wondering. Yeah. And, um, and which means I'm I'm also six uh, foot four. less tall than Gabber Zachman. Oh my god, but this not is shorter. Fantastic. But we're both okay with that. Yes, we yeah. are. We we have we have discussed previously. I think that the listening audience should know that, that romance novel covers were discussed previously, so you can only imagine yeah, this, what we're sitting here in. We can only imagine what we're dressed in right now. <laughs> <laughs> my hair is so long right now, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's not that's a right. for public that's uh, right. conversation. Yeah, someone yeah. someone put the uh, put the javelin on the on this. We're on the high <laughs> seas. Yes. Put the spear on uh, aside for and the moment. And before we get massively sidetracked, which is about to happen in about 30 seconds, <laughs> if you want to find Gabra, you can find her at gabrazachman.com. And if you want to find Dan, you can find him at daniellerner.com. Any silent letters in any of those that we need to know about? Yeah, no, but it, bore, boring but functional, right? Okay. Our names yeah. as websites. We may right. mix up the uh, URLs in week two and three of the residency. So yes, stay, totally. Stay <laughs> totally. tuned. Um, by the way, if you do recognize Gabra's voice and it's not from these podcasts, we know where you recognize them from. It's probably because she's read a romance novel that you've, you know, just happened to enjoy in some way. Um, let's, uh, so if you're not familiar with this format, we go around the table, each one of us throws out a topic and we just jam on it until it is unjammed. So why don't we start out with Gabra Zachman? Ah, uh, fantastic. Oh, you, well, you know what? This is great. I had thought that it would be really fun because I'm a great lover of romance to bring something connected to the romance world. You know, Jonathan and I were talking earlier about uh, what an extraordinary market the romance the romance novel world is. Hugely, hugely selling market. And one of my friends in the industry, in the uh, audiobook industry, sent me this amazing article about the men who pose for the covers of romance novels and how it it's was- all about Dan. <laughs> it, was, it was all about Dan Lerner um, and how there, it was a spotlight on this one guy who had done, you know, 400 covers of, of novels that we've all that we all know about very popular stuff, but that he's actually still working his day job. He just doesn't really make all that much money. And he's it's awesome. And they show they showed like a piece of the industry of like, you know, a couple different choices of him on different covers and how they might have reworked it and this and that seems like a sweetheart. But anyway, I just wanted to kind of throw forth this idea of <laughs> so here we are right women's romance becomes this huge market hugely lucrative the half naked dude on the cover actually not being paid very well <laughs> for his work mm, objectified well that's my question ex. that's right are we so objectified used well um, um, <laughs> hey, buddy, you, you had it coming. You know, usually we would see the opposite. I just loved the idea of that. Can I ask another question related to this? Yes, and of course. We'll, I'm happy to dive it. into your answer. Um, I know Dan already has the answer because he has the answer for everything. But, but the, what pops into my head is if this, if the same dude is on the cover of 400 different books. Yeah. And I'm assuming that the books are written about different male characters yeah. each time. Mm-hmm. Does it like kind of take away from the fact that the the readers are seeing the identical person 
being po- or or like is the face obscured on most covers or something? Well, well, right. What a wonderful, wonderful question. I had the same thought. You know, frankly, I mean, all joking, both aside or not aside, I feel like between obscuring the face, like it might just be a pex shot a lot of the time, but also it might be like he's wigged in long hair, right? He's on the he's on the front of a Viking ship, mm. suddenly with like long hair and a helmet on. Which doesn't look like the same dude who's got crazy buzzed cut with a military, you know, with dog tags. Hmm. So hmm. I don't, I don't know that it looks that we know it's the same guy. Or <laughs> just nobody who's reading these books really cares. <laughs> well, but, but maybe like. right. But that's the point, also. So once again, like best objectification of right, all right. times. I mean, I just I was fascinated by the fact that this dude. That this dude is not making a whole heck of a lot of money. And he's not. I mean, I think some of the numbers were cited. He's really not making a whole lot of money doing this. He can't live on it. Have you ways. met him, by the way? Have you have you seen him? No, no, this was I an mean, article. you've seen him many, many times on covers of various <laughs> right? No, this is just an article that I've that I was reading. I'm, I'm just curious, times. if he's making nothing, maybe he's just not that good looking and he's just stoked to be objectified. Well, right. let me tell you what, for, on in print, he's extremely good looking. I mean, he's he's a terrific, the point is that yeah. he's a Just, terrific looking male I have a, I have a face model. for radio, right? So, yeah. <laughs> but in, but in yes, print, so I'm extremely good looking too, and we all know that's a big fat lie. So. <laughs> Photoshop, man. Yeah, no, good question. All, all great questions all. I mean, I just wonder, it just seems like an interesting role reversal when you typically have male-dominated fields where the men are making all of the money, but women who are modeling might be objectified, but usually making, I mean, female models make a fortune, right? So mm. then here's this like weird moment in which it's generally women writers who are making a fortune doing writing these books now, see, if they're lucky, and and the guy on the cover is actually not making a lot of money. I loved is, it. This I just is interesting it. to me on another level too, because I was just at, I kind of was an interloper and, and, a, and an outsider in a small intensive um, sort of book insider type of gathering where the room is populated with a number of top romance writers. Awesome. And one of them um, was sharing how she likes to actually hire her own models for the book cover shoots and pays them, I think it's a couple thousand dollars. Oh, now that's Awesome. Yeah. And well, it, that's enterprising and that's really cool because she wants it to look a certain way. Is that what it's about? She yeah, wants it to look like the vision like, in her head. Exactly. It's just like, well, this, that's is, this rad. is exactly what, like, I, I know the person, I know the body, I know the way I want the whole thing to look, and I'm oh, willing to actually so pay cool. to make that me? happen. But it sounds like that's very much the outlier. I, I would have assumed that it was a lot of just stock photo, too. But Well, it might be. It, might, it might very well be. And I wonder if yeah. that's actually what's going on. I wonder if this particular guy has, you know, has posed and he's got like, you know, 500 stock photos out there. And what's mm-hmm. happening is that he's actually just making a small percentage every time they're licensed for a different book. But it's actually, but nobody actually brings him in to pose. I, yeah. That's well said. That I might, yeah. that's what's going that, on there. It could be. In which case... Because there's, I mean, there are mass, massive, you know, like online stock photo places where you can get stuff. Mm-hmm. Then it, you know, then does that actually change the whole equation? Because now you're saying, well, it's not that he's showing up for 400 gigs and getting paid nothing. It's that he showed up for five gigs, cranked out a whole bunch of images, and now he just goes about his life. And those are throwing off like a nice side income without him purely leveraging his, quote, intellectual property. That's right. No, that's a great question. I do think based on the article, I think it was the first one. Hmm. I do think he actually does do a whole bunch of shoots. They were actually showing some of the shoots, which makes me ah, think that okay. it was it was in the in the present. But Did they know. say how much he was actually paid per shoot? I no, I don't know that they cited that, but I think they said that he that he does it regularly as a job, but that maybe total 
income is like $20,000. Got it. Right, <laughs> which is certainly nothing to sneeze at, but certainly nothing to live on. Right, for four, divided by 400. That's, uh... that's right. I don't know. Responses, Dan? You know, the romance novel thing, and to take a, a slight tangent here, but the romance novel thing fascinates me. Oh, yeah, me too. Um, I could imagine it must, which is great, <laughs> seeing as you're writing them. And, you know, one of the things that comes to mind is the, the opening of uh, one of my favorite books, The Gift, we, we've discussed. Yep. I don't know if you're familiar with it by yes. Lewis Hyde. Yes. Uh, and he opens the book by saying every Harlequin's romance novel is X amount of pages, right? Every three months, five come out. I'm making the numbers up. Right. Uh, it's X amount of pages. No one kisses until page 70-something. There's, no, there's no, no other physical interaction until page 90-something. And then all these things that happen consistently throughout. So th- one of the things that fascinates me is that not only is – and clearly they're not all formulaic. This is just a Harlequin thing. Right. But that the formula of people who buy that kind of romance novel consistently, they really enjoy uh, a, a consistent pace – Right and plot and uh, an outcome and apparently they enjoy a consistent image too on the cover. Oh, I right? see. Yes. So and, yes. I mean, now clearly that would be an argument to bump his fee up, but at the same time, it's it's really interesting to hear that they want that image so consistently they're willing to go back to the well yeah. to to do it repeatedly. What maybe one uh, week it's dog tags and the next week it's. Um, Captain Hook gear. Mm-hmm. But uh, by the way, I mean, look, think about, about Fabio. Right? Well, well, that's right. And they talked a lot about Fabio in this article, right. actually, for yeah. that exact reason. You're yeah. right. Was he really well paid? <laughs> you know, that's actually a great question. He had certainly more fame, right. but, mm-hmm. but apparently was, was maybe just a notch above sort of the amount of work that this guy does. Right. right. You know, so I'm not, I don't know. I really but don't. He also parlayed it into something. Fabio, right. I mean, we knew Fabio post or at least. Yeah. Not only as the cover of, but as Yeah, I mean, I, I've never read a romance novel, yet I certainly know who he is and right. what he looks like. And You've yes. taken a vested interest in him. Gorgeous right? flowing mane of <laughs> <laughs> What I would do for that hair. I tell you. Yeah. I want the hair on my chest. <laughs> Settle for it anywhere, just about now. <laughs> um, how are we feeling about this topic? Great. I, th- I think that's I think that that's it. I just wanted to chat about it a little bit. Yeah. Because, um, of course, I, I think you guys expect me... I hope you expect me to bring in something a little bit sensual and a little bit romance-oriented. I hope you expect that. That's why you're here. That's I'd why I'm here. I'd be disappointed if, if it didn't, and there there it was, or is. Yeah. yeah. I just wanted, so we started, we've started it out. We've awesome. started, the gates are open. Sweet. Yeah. Mr. Lerner, what's on your mind today? Mm. Oh, boy. There's so much stuff happening in my mind right now. But um, uh, seeing as we are right in the middle of a crazy, weird, frightening gripping election cycle let's not Ooh, talk about that are. right now um <laughs> instead of that because yes. i have no idea that go on forever Perfect. so merle haggard died yesterday i heard that and i would not mm. it would not have necessarily uh been something that caught my eye but i i found myself at, at the museum of american history last weekend in dc oh. and we were going through the transportation exhibit. And there was an exhibit about um, the Dust Bowl years when people were traveling from uh, Oklahoma and and those locations to the West. And they take you through one family's uh, journey. And then you get to the end and it turns out that these people are Myrtle Haggard's parents. Oh. So I thought, this is really interesting. I I, want to get to know a bit more about Myrtle Haggard. Mm -hmm. And I did about two days before he passed away. What caught my caught my brain, and what I'm curious to, to discuss a little bit is I thought about what it is that he had done, which is really comment on 
the times mm. on on uh, socially and and uh, politically and and the left and the right and otherwise uh, was something that we that we have seen throughout the years. We've seen it with uh, Dylan and we've seen it with uh, Guthrie. We see it with lots of different people. Mm. But who's doing it now? That's what I'm curious about. I'm curious about who are the whether it's musicians or creatives. And I know there are definitely some authors out there. But I guess really, who are the musicians who are commenting, using that medium to comment on on modern times? Not, not that I have a doubt about it. I'm just curious to know who comes to mind for you right now. So musicians who are commenting, creating like, like real social commentary. Mm-hmm. Mm. I find it aggravating that Dan brought in something so thought-provoking. <sighs> aggravating. Are you going to punch me? I was going to talk about <laughs> this. If I were closer to you, I would. And <laughs> like sitting, you know, two inches too far to punch you. You see, he's a smart one. I know. That's well, why I know I... you're smart too, but no, always, between Jeff... me and him, I've always said he's the smart one. That's interesting. I but think I he is the smart one. You didn't say one. smart. You said short one. Was <laughs> oh, that what I always <laughs> that's what said? You're saying, yeah. Oh, never mind. <laughs> well, as long as I can be the cute one. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And smart. You know, the first thing that came to mind, I'm going to not answer the question. Um, I'm going to instead say, uh, for whatever reason and what, why I think it's an excellent, excellent question, is because no musicians come to mind. What comes to mind for me are uh, uh, comedians, particularly um John Stewart and, and Stephen Colbert, and that kind of those, the like incisive, incisive, you know, funny commentators that's who i think is doing that now but musicians what do you think so two things um come to mind and maybe the two extremes also so one my all-time favorite band which is u2 oh still rocking it out still still creating amazing music so i'm in concert last Mm -hmm. the end of last year and they blew my mind and their whole last album was was again like very deep and and direct um there was a lot of political and social commentary in and they've always been that way you know mm. like since the early days with you know sunday blaze sunday and mm. youtube war and they've they've consistently like over like 30 years now you know so they're part of the old guard but they're still in my mind as good and as relevant as they've ever been and they're just and they've got their profile has built and their their gravitas as human beings Mm -hmm. um, and their relationships and their involvement in world affairs has built to a place where I listen to them more from a place of teens expressing an angsty, horrible or local political situation and more from people who are sort of world-worn and gone and seen and done and participated and, you know, are just deeply devoted to sustained change and to, to, to shining lights. So to me, you know, that's sort of the old guard. I when I, the, the bigger challenge I have, maybe it's just because I'm not as dialed in to sort of like who's newer on the scene that's like really adding mm-hmm. strong, you know, like telling like, you know, exposition on this is the reality today. You know, there was a window of time where we uh, watched the um, documentary straight out of Compton a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. you know, and it was like NWA and that whole window where they were everyone who came out of that scene was kind of attacked for their lyrics and stuff like that mm-hmm. and they're like and their defense was consistently look we're just telling you about the lies we're living like you may not like it but we walk out the door in the morning and this is what we're running from and this is how we're this is how we see you know, like these different people this is how we interact with them this is our lives and we're telling you the truth of our realities and deal with it so flash forward to today you know the loudest voices 
I don't know if those are the voices that are actually making that level of commentary or shining the light. You know, obviously one of the loudest out there today is Kanye West. Mm. I don't, I don't understand what he's trying, the points he's trying. And maybe again, I'm the old dude in the room. So, so maybe I just don't get sort of where he's coming from. It's interesting when I think about like who's newer on the scene where I think there's really sort of a, a strong contemplative side that's that's releasing itself through the music. I'm sure it's out there, but um, I got to think on a little bit more. To... I know. I, I, I love, I love the question. I really, really love the question because I think at, at, uh, at one time in the world, it was what everyone was doing. We think mm. about the sixties. Yeah. That's what everyone was doing. Now, you know, I always think through a lens of, I've been having these conversations about the theater, which similarly at one time was all politicized. And that now is just not, our voices don't rise in the same way. Mm. It's what it was originally created for in certain countries. The theater is highly, highly, highly political. And it it's not so, it's not so in the same way. Are, but I, I think I'm not up on the, my music loves are generally of an older time. They're jazz and blues and feel, 90s music, frankly. Yeah, I mean, I feel like also that there's so much of the pursuit of fame for fame's sake that music mm. and I don't know theater, maybe theater yeah. and maybe even writing or just maybe even form that some forms that have been known traditionally as, as artistic expression also become known as vehicles to accelerate your path to fame. Yeah. And that that becomes the primary pursuit rather than there's something inside of me that has to get out or there's some commentary that I want to make with what I'm creating. What, what do you, you offered the questions? So what do you think? You know, I, I, I hear both, both sides and it's really a challenge because as, as older people in the room, how in yeah. touch are we with, with uh, the music that's coming out? And it's, I was just curious to hear your answers, to be honest. When I think about it, I think the idea of, of the hip hop movement of the, of the 90s was huge. Mm -hmm. You know, because I think about Merle Haggard, I think about Guthrie and Dylan. Yeah, all yeah. they had was a guitar, right? That's all they had. Oh, they yeah. couldn't afford anything else. They came out of these, these really challenging places. And it's not so dissimilar when it comes to hip hop in the 90s. And I would imagine that some of that is still coming out, although the idea of it being a vehicle for fame certainly has to play in. Ooh, someone just popped into my mind. So, Macklemore. Okay. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had what was the name of the song? It was all about equality. Um, oh, yeah. Like yeah, on the name yeah. of the song, but he's actually somebody who seems like he kind of came out of nowhere. He's massively mm -hmm. popular, and then yeah, yeah. There's there's some real social commentary in his work. You know, I don't know if you I don't know if you saw the uh, his performance at the Grammys, but I you know this is how out of touch I am with these things. But when Kendrick Lamar stepped up on stage, did you see that by I any did. chance? I did. Blew me away. I, just, me away I was also. like, that's the best thing I've ever seen in the Grammys. That was amazing. And yeah. it was all about social commentary. You know, the interesting that's thing is true, it, it's it's so far removed from our lives in many ways um, that when I think back about the Haggards and the Dillons and those folks are talking about, they were talking about big scope political issues. And what a lot of these guys seem to be talking about are no less important, but I should say men and women are talking about are no less important, but they are um, more niche mm. kind of things. So I'm like, I can't relate to that at all. You know, as opposed to the other folks we're talking about, this is what's happening on the left and the right right now. And we are in the middle of this crazy, wacky political place mm. where left and right is like totally ripe yeah. to, be, uh, to be commented on, which... Comedians do all the time, as you pointed out. You, some of the best, some of my favorite, I should say, political commentary happens every Saturday night. You know, you go to yes, SNL and they're yes. going to say something about it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I miss John Stewart terribly because he'd be having a field day. You know, the only reason why I won't even say the candidate's name, why the only reason why should that candidate be elected would be amazing is because John Stewart could skewer them for the next four years. <laughs> um, but 
I'm not go there. But that's a challenge. It's an interesting one. I, I just I'm waiting for someone to comment on what's happening on the on the big on the big picture um, uh, umbrella picture that we see in, in politics. You know, but there are amazing people out there, no doubt, no doubt. And I also I, I do wonder too, and riff just for a second is I've always been fascinated by by artists' first three albums, mm-hmm. sometimes four, and rarely and sometimes five, because I wonder if they lose touch. You know, uh, or at you least, mean you mean the more successful they get, the more yes, exactly. The farther right. away they get from the roots that made them who they are. Right. So if we talk about the early NWA, if we talk about the early Bruce Springsteen, if we talk about the early U two, which was really Sunday Bloody Sunday, right. uh, and then they, how close are they to the same roots that they had that really gave them that gravitas? Yeah. Well, and, so, and even if you move, because I think everyone, you know, if you're if what you're writing about is a really bad situation, and that happens to be your full time reality, mm-hmm. then the moment you succeed, there's a really strong likelihood that you're going to leverage whatever success and now resources that you have to move out of that really hard scenario as quickly as humanly possible and to a much better place, you know. And that, but then if you turn around, you know, like it's at, the further you drift from the day to day, you know, like trauma of the thing that, you know, eventually gave you like all that stuff to write about or talk about or sing about or paint about, you know, does that, that that's got to make it, you know, if you've, you have to redefine your experience of every day and, and choose, you know, as I drift further and further away from that source of pain and it becomes less and less felt and less and less embodied mm-hmm. every day that I'm further from it. And I feel it less and less you like, are you either going to put yourself back into that place in the name of, you know, like being able to feel it enough to write in, in a really powerful way? Or are you going to somehow try and figure out how to refocus the lens on other things? So I, I think that's kind of what you two did mm-hmm. in my mind. They start out with a very local situation. Like this is brutal pain that we're feeling in our town. Mm-hmm. And as they gain the ability to withdraw themselves from that, and also as a lot of that circumstance changed politically over the years, mm-hmm. You know, they shifted their spotlights and turned them into floodlights, and they they flooded other parts of the world where there was still equal pain and said, we may be out of the place that brought us here, but we still have a social obligation. to We, we still have the yearning to make music and to, to comment, and we still have a sense of obligation to leverage whatever reach we've developed to, like, flood you know turn the floodlights on the other places of the world that still are mired in this deep deep sorrow um and do something about it i wonder if that sense of civic responsibility is really diminishing in a major way well, as exa- people move into a place of fame these days that's exactly that's such what kanye a smart did thing. i'm kidding yeah. I'm totally kidding such a that's such a smart smart way of putting that because yeah think about the the I think what one needs to create the best art is the personal. The more personal it is, mm. the more deeply felt it is, the better the art is, mm. always. And you're right, as one leverages to a different place in life, there's an extraordinary amount of selflessness that would go into shining a spotlight on people who are where you were before you dragged yourself out of whatever that is. That could even just be heartbreak. You know, a lot of people write songs about heartbreak. Then suddenly when you're feeling better, you're going to write a song for everybody else's heartbreak? That's extraordinarily selfless. Beautiful, but selfless. But maybe that's part of what's going on. If if you began your career because you really cared about the topic itself rather than just the fame, as Jonathan indicated before. Mm. And if you started off for the fame, then it's not like you have the same kind of uh, – 
feeling for what it is that's happening with somebody else. Yeah, and I mean, and I think there's a third option too, uh, which is that your form of expression was largely a form of personal therapy. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. To excise, to to Mm. either excise or survive, you know, like and find a way to flourish in the face of an extreme circumstance. And when that circumstance resolves or goes away, or you find a way to process your way through it. The primary motivation, which was you know to be a source of therapy to sustain you through really brutal times, goes away, mm. and then you have to redefine who you are and why you're doing this thing and whether you continue mm. when that thing no longer exists. And um, and I think it's how people choose to redefine what they express in that next wave that that my guess is really defines them not just as artists but as human beings. That's awesome. Yeah. Or I could just be making that all up. But we're pretty much making this all up. So. Worked. Yeah. yeah, I would say I would say fields for the win on that one. That's quite beautiful. Uh, this, it's not a zero sum game. Turn it from a spotlight. Oh, to... I'm sorry. I thought that's what it was. That's no. why I'm here. Actually, no, we're, I'm only here for that no, we're supposed to vote after we stop recording. Like, nobody's supposed to know about it. Okay, it's just between us. Oh, right, right. I still yeah. say spotlight to floodlight is is the stickiest of the, of the day. Hashtag. Yeah. Hashtag. <laughs> All right. So, so circling around to, uh, I'll throw out the last topic here. And Great. The, t- the topic is soft signals, soft signals. And so what do I mean by that? I mean, I'm really curious about the way that we communicate in subtle ways and nuanced ways and mm. nonverbal ways and how technology is interacting with that. So We've all heard various, you know, stats thrown out. And I think one of the things that's thrown around all the time is that uh, 75% of communication is actually nonverbal. I've done a little bit of research on that. And it turns out that actually a lot of that original, <laughs> if you guys only knew what just happened here. Yes, the, the nonverbal communication yeah, a certain that's happening non-verbal, around nonverbal uh, <laughs> gesture. <laughs> It was just offered in my direction. Sorry. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Won't say who did it. Dan did keep his clothes on uh, in case anyone's concerned. (laughs) Hold on, I'm flushing. (laughs) Um, Anyway, uh, so we've heard been told like 75, 80% of communication is nonverbal. It turns out when you really do the research that that data was completely misconstrued. It's really not the truth of it. Um, Oh. But still, there is a very substantial part of communication that's nuanced, that's nonverbal, that's microexpressions, that's tonality, rhythm, pace. Gabri, you know this of anyone Mm -hmm. because you make a living with your voice from people who can't see you and the way that you use it is everything. Absolutely. And when I think about the way that soft signals are, are critically important to our understanding of each other as human beings and our cultivation of empathy as a society, I wonder what technology is doing with soft signals. And on the one hand, I think to myself, well, I think soft signals, there are a lot of them probably just, you know, vanish because they, you just can't perceive them, you know, and we try and make up for it with emoticons. Oh, yes, and, yes. Uh, but then on the other hand, if we accept the fact that, you know, soft signals are important and we accept the fact that technology is here to stay, is there a way to create a new language of soft signals through technology. So what I would love for you guys to respond to is if you just give me the answers, the absolute definitive answers to these questions, then I will be whole and I can sleep well tonight. Well, I think I'd like to turn this over to Dan because I believe that Because he's the king of the gesture? No, no, it's because, because I think Dan was introduced as an expert in expertise, right? Which tends to make me think that he must be an expert in 
in this. Uh, he, so, he's actually... Uh, what am I not an expert in these he's, days? Right, he's an expert in expertise, which means he's... He's actually a comic strip artist. I just like, <laughs> I just like the alliteration of expert yeah. expertise. <laughs> yeah. that, or did you mean like e expertise as in like a strip cheese? <laughs> Either one. Um, no, I have thoughts on this, but I would actually, all joking aside, I would love to hear Dan's thoughts. Daniel or... Oh, you wow. you are the positive psychology person in the room, meaning you yeah. know everything about human behavior. That's, right. <laughs> that's true. Because it'd be basically you know everything about everything. Well, that's, that's true, too. That's true, too. And let me just let me go through my mental files here and figure out. Um, you know, uh, so I think what comes to mind for me first is, and, and I, I hate to say this is not going to be an answer. It's going to be uh, it's going to be more of a, uh, a wondering aloud, hmm. amusing, if you will, uh, is how many tens of thousands of years it's taken for us to develop uh, the soft signal language mm. to be comfortable with understanding the minutia of a frown or of a smile or of fear or of any of the uh, any of the emotions that we that we show people facially I and mean, we when when we look at studies I want to overblow this but there's basically one way to indicate that you're happy and there are multiple ways to indicate that you're something else right scared anxious uh, depressed um, so on and so forth and one of the arguments is because we've needed those those kind of negatively oriented facial signals to survive, right? We we need to show people that we're scared. They need to see that we're angry, bare our teeth, so on and so forth. So they understand what's going on and that we don't attack each other. We know to run away or what we're going to do. But more recently, because the world's become an increasingly safer place, and the argument now is that it's as, as safe a place as it's ever been, according to um, Steve Pinker author of Better Angels of Our Nature, we are allowing ourselves to uh, to explore more positively oriented emotions more consistently and also that we are developing the ability to show people that we are happy, that it is safe, so on and so forth. Uh, but these have developed over tens and literally hundreds of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the big one of my fascinations and also what, what I'm challenged by and troubled by is how quickly over the past and, and at increasing speed over the past 500, then 100, and really the last 25 and now 10 years has been how quickly things have changed technologically and socially. And you know what? The three-pound meatloaf between our ears, as Dan Gilbert calls it, is still the same three-pound meatloaf it was 500 years ago and 2,000 years ago. And that meatloaf is looking for soft signals. Because that's what it does. And so I am – I would be concerned about our, you know, our, our lack or, or the, the, the rapid diminishment of our ability to share those soft signals because we're built to have those as, uh, as essential aspects of our ability to communicate with each other. Here's a curiosity. If our three-pound meatloaf hmm. is – I'm pretty sure yours is three and a half too, by the way. Because yours is definitely bigger than mine. <laughs> Call me yeah. fat. <laughs> fat brain. Fat brain. Oh, come on. <laughs> if it's if it is if it is in fact in a state of sort of constant seeking for soft signals and it's not getting the volume that it's it's been trained to get to act effectively anymore, does it start to create its own? What does it do? Does it does it just start to put together whatever data set it can to try and create its own, or does it just sit there and yeah? just not have what it needs to be to actually act any ideas i can i can only speculate that it's do you want to take a shot at this <laughs> well i think that something i'm fascinated by which is right along these lines is i am fascinated by the misinterpretation we all 
have and suffer of texts and emails because you can't, there are no soft signals and there's no tone, you know, there's so I actually think the brain will strive to construe the soft signal where there is none. So therefore, it seems like it, it would have to fill it in somehow. I think that it does. So it happens all the time. And we've all had them. Increasingly, it's becoming common that, you know, I have a friend who texts me something that's like, you know, well, I wasn't really interested anyway. And I think, wow, you sound angry. I construe the yeah, anger. Yeah, that sounds straight up passive aggressive. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Except then I connect back to say, hey, you doing okay? Did I say something to piss you off? And the response is, oh, no, 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 no. I was just joking. I was responding to what you meant about the blah, 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 blah. Right? Because we can't tell tone and we can't tell. And so sometimes, sure, an emoticon helps. I mean, I tend to use the, I, I tend to use emoticons like the emoticon smiley face all the time so that people know that I'm joking mm -hmm. because I have a very dry sense of humor. It can be read as really obnoxious and really mean and really angry. But if there's an emoticon <laughs> smile next, but yeah, how much of a substitute is that for, you know, the 14 different ways I could possibly smile, laugh, wink? Whatever. But I do think, I think the mind will construe the soft signal regardless. And that's why there's so much misinterpretation with, you know, technological yeah, stuff. Yeah, my, my sense is the same thing too. My sense is we we either get it, but if we don't get it, because I, my sense is that we, we crave it, like we're used to having it, that we just create it. We assume something. We assume a soft signal into existence yeah. that may or may, I mean, we're, so many of us are actually not good at even like noticing and construing the real soft signals when we're face to face. Right. When you remove that, you know, and there's just literally nothing, it's just, there's just a void, you know, then I think the possibilities for us just creating either doomsday scenarios or fantasy scenarios because that allows us to, you know, like justify or rationalize whatever scenario we want to scenario you know, to do that the opportunity for that skyrockets. So the question, and but I'm not like a defeatist about this. And I'm also not, because to me, it's fascinating. And I, Dan, I, th I think your point was really interesting in that it's taken us, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of years for our brains to evolve to a point where soft signals are so critical and technology, you know, the, the pace of technological removal of soft signals is a matter of years, not even decades, you know, at this point. So then the question is, if we realize how important these things are, you know, Step one intervention was emojis and emoticons. Mm -hmm. yeah, but are we, will we develop, will, will technology develop other ways that are actually more nuanced and more regular and easier to actually start to convey these soft signals? And I, I think it, it could be kind of interesting. Maybe there are ways to, mm -hmm. to do it that we're just not even thinking about right now. But I actually remain hopeful that somehow technology will evolve to a point to reintroduce some type of soft signal to the conversation. I, I honestly think the, the greatest reintroduction is stuff like FaceTime and Skype. Yeah, where you can actually, you see, can actually see the soft signals. Right. You know, right. the, now I, I actually have... think there's, that's what, and, and that's a huge, that just enabled me, I was f marveling about this. This is this has enabled me to have a, a, a meeting with a Colorado producer on Skype yesterday with someone who I'd like to partner with, which is, completely possible because we have things like Skype where yeah. we can actually have meetings. And when we've, you know, taken applications for programs that we've run for Good Life Project in the past, even if there's a great application, we'll almost always ask for a Skype conversation 
largely just because we just want to I want somebody like on the screen for 15 minutes, even if what they say isn't really, I'm, I'm just observing. Yeah. I want to just get a feel, even through rough video sometimes. You know, a very good friend of mine um, who's uh, involved in the futurist industry uh, last year described to me a bit of technology that's, be that's becoming more popular, which I had not heard about before at all, which is hologram. And instead of FaceTime, it's you sit in a boardroom, half of part of which, some of which, all of which, is outfitted to be able to produce a hologram of someone somewhere else in the world. So you think about, for example, the investment bankers that fly around the world for 24 hours to get a deal done because they really want to do it in person. They want to be able to sit and see with the other person. And um, this technology apparently is getting better and better and better. So it feels like you are literally sitting in the room with a person who is halfway around the world who feels like they're sitting in a room with you. That's awesome. And that's so totally I wonder weird. if that's, that's what ends awesome. up happening. Yeah. That, that, might, that might be it. And, and yeah. you have to imagine, like, that technology is probably driven in part for entertainment basis, but also it's probably driven in part because we do have this deep yearning and seeking for those, the presence, the deeper set, set of signals that our brain just wants to have. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Always fun hanging out with you guys. Oh my gosh. This has been week one in Guest in Residence Roundtable with my guests. Gabrazakman at gabrazakman.com and Daniel Lerner, who can be found at daniellerner.com. Thank you so much, guys. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project. Hey, thanks so much for listening. We love sharing real, unscripted conversations and ideas that matter. And if you enjoy that too, and if you enjoy what we're up to, I'd be so grateful if you would take just a few seconds and rate and review the podcast. It really helps us get the word out. And you can actually do that now right from the podcast app on your phone if you have an iPhone. You just click on the reviews tab and take a few seconds and jam over there. And if you haven't yet subscribed while you're there, then make sure you hit the subscribe button while you're at it. And then you'll be sure to never miss out on any of our incredible guests or conversations or riffs. And for those of you, our awesome community who are on other platforms, any love that you might be able to offer sharing our message would just be so appreciated. Until next time, this is Jonathan Fields signing off for Good Life Project. Good Life Project.